What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. Today's podcast is absolutely amazing. I it, I might be one. It might be my favorite podcast I've ever recorded. I had such a good time with my guest today. It was. I was like, I was talking to an old friend. She challenged me. She made me think differently. She gave me some, like a ton of actionable items for you guys and me to do, to take back to my team, to, to what I do and how I think. And I've been watching her on TV for a long time. I was into poker when I was uh, younger. I still love to play poker. And um, I loved watching the World Series of Poker on ESPN. And um, you know, she was in this group of people that was highly successful in the poker industry and has gone on to become a business coach to write books to just you know, challenge the way that we think about decision making. And it's a long podcast, I'm going to say that. So, but I encourage you to listen to the whole thing and come back to it and listen to it again and again and again. Um, I normally would break something like that, this up into two podcasts. However, I am announcing speakers. This is our speaker week, right? Our speaker weeks. We're announcing speakers for Flip Hacking Live, and I have a jam-packed schedule. I didn't expect to go over about 30 or 45 minutes with her. We ended up talking for like two hours, almost two hours. So I realize it's a little bit long, but it's worth it, trust me. And we have a surprise for you at the end of the podcast. So I can't wait for that. So uh, this is Annie Duke. Annie Duke, uh, professional poker player, um, PhD uh, author of Thinking in Bets, and uh, soon to be her book coming out, How to Decide just absolutely amazing on how we can think differently and how we make decisions. And it's a, it's a serious life changing conversation for me. I'm going to do a lot of things differently. So I hope you guys enjoy it and uh, stick around till the end when we make an announcement. My name is Bill Allen and I'm the leader of a group of elite house flippers and wholesalers called seven figure flipping. We don't brag or show off our success, but instead let integrity and stewardship be our guide. We are dedicated to helping people unlock the freedom they desperately need. If you ask other real estate investors, they will say to keep your secrets quiet. But we believe in abundance, not scarcity. And that's why we are the elite. We are Seven Figure Flipping, and this podcast is our playbook. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am really excited about our guest today. I've been uh, following her for a long time on TV, and I picked up a book called Thinking in Bets a couple years ago, and it completely changed the way that I think about different things. And I'm really excited to talk to her like one-on-one to get her take on some of the stuff. And um, this is a professional poker player. And I remember when I was, um, when I got in the military, I went to the Air Force Institute of Technology. I was going to grad school up in uh, Ohio, and I played in this poker tournament. And I was at the final table and the last two, the top two people got a entry into the World Series of Poker. And it was in 2003 and I came in third. I was like devastated. I didn't think I was like really good poker player, but I was like, I didn't even think I would make it that far. And then when I got there, I was like, I have to be one or two. And uh, I did some of the things that she talks about in Thinking in Bets, which got me in a bad spot. So, um, but I'm really excited to talk to her. I, this has been kind of like a... Um, uh, bucket list guest of mine on the podcast for a while. And I think she's really going to help you guys as wholesalers, flippers in the real estate world in how you think about things. So uh, Annie Duke, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. You can see my, my cat has joined, which is what happens now that we're all at home doing everything, right? So <laughs> that's it. The life is a little bit different these days. So life I mean, yeah, I, I like, you know, there's a lot of things that have, it's brought out a lot of good things for me. And it's also brought out a lot of challenges. In fact, I work from home. And when all this happened, I have three little boys. I have a six-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old. 
And when they left, when daycare closed and the schools closed, I had to get an office because I couldn't record video. I couldn't do anything. So I'm like the one person in the country that got an office during the pandemic when everybody else had to leave an office. So I have this big office and it's just me in here. So it's right down the street from my house. Wait, it's awesome. So you can count. It's uh, so I didn't get an office that was separate from my house, but I did not have an office area in my house and I had to create one. That's it. And you know, a lot of people in the real estate world, they've realized that their house is there is like, now they're all being pushed in their house. They're going, I need a different house. Like, and as things change. So for us, we actually saw this, we saw this like pause button come, but now we're seeing this uptick in like demand. Like the supply has gone way down because about half the listings are on the market right now. And our vacant houses and all the houses we're fixing up are like the only ones on the market. So we're seeing a ton of volume and prices going crazy, stuff like that. So it, it actually has been uh, really good for us um, recently. Like I'd say the past two or three months has just been crazy. So uh, it's been good. So all right, why don't you tell everybody uh, who you are? If they don't know and never heard of Annie Duke, don't watch uh, professional poker on TV uh, from a little while back or have never picked up Thinking in Bets. Sure, so uh, gosh, you know, it's always hard for me to figure out where to start, but I, I mean, I guess I'll start at what I would sort of consider the beginning of my adult life, um, which was uh, in a PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania and I was studying cognitive science, which, um, is just generally uh, how is your brain interacting with the physical world and sort of constructing your reality. So uh, like the way that I sort of talk about like the kinds of things that cognitive science would be um, looking at, it's all the way from like, uh, how do you learn about different things to how do you perceive color? Because um, if you think about like, you know, this color here, it's not actually kind of yellowish orange. Um, that's not a property of the couch. It's that there's light reflecting off of this surface. And then our eyes perceive that to be orange, which I know is very weird to think about. But, you know, if you've ever seen like, you know, for example, cats see in black and white, right? So it's not a, it's not a property of, of the couch, but we construct this world which has color and, and we hear certain sounds. And this cat is really into it right here. I'm gonna move him over here. So, um, thank you, Kaz. No, no, no. So, um, so basically, what I was thinking about was how do people learn um, in situations where the the feedback that you would need to learn isn't super uh, easy to sort of parse out. So something happens, you have to figure out why it happened, and it's not exactly clear. So that's what I was doing when I was back back in my days getting a PhD. Um, then right at the end of uh, that program, when I was gonna go off and become a professor, I actually got sick um, and I needed to take a year off in order to recuperate. And so during that year, some, I just kind of needed money. Um, I wasn't in graduate school anymore. I didn't have a stipend, but I was fully intending to go back and become a professor. Uh, and it was during that year that I started playing poker. Um, it was an odd time to start playing poker because um, unlike now where we see poker on TV all the time and it's on the internet and so on and so forth, this was in the 90s and it was not on television. Um, it wasn't on the internet and it was actually very odd that I would have even known that this was something you could do for a living except that my brother, whose name is Howard Letterer, was already actually a world-class poker player. He had come before me in this and he had already been playing for about 10 years. Um, and he sort of suggested maybe this is something that I could do in the meantime while I go back to becoming a professor. 
So um, I decided to do that in the meantime. In the meantime, turned into 18 years. Um, I won some stuff, uh, World Series of Poker bracelet and um, the National Heads Up Championship and Tournament Champions and a variety of other things. I, I ended up having a pretty successful career. Um, and in 2012, I actually retired from the game completely because um, about 10 years before that, in 2002, um, I started kind of circling back to the work that I was doing on, on a, essentially learning and decision making is what I was kind of thinking about. And I started giving talks, which were about like, how could the way that you think about this problem that poker presents you, which is like, you know, how do you figure out why something happened? You win or lose a hand. Why did that happen? Did you, did you make good decisions or bad decisions? Did, did you get unlucky? Cause there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can't control. Um, you know, you can't see the other players cards. So, you know, did you sort of figure that stuff out? Right. And this, you have to figure all of that stuff where there's real money involved, right? You're going to win or lose money depending on the quality of your decisions. Um, and it all happens in the space of about two minutes. Um, uh, so you have to like do, do all of that really fast. And there's, there's just a lot of uncertainty in that situation. So as I was thinking about how you sort of deal with that environment, how to, I was thinking about how that went back and informed the work that I've been doing earlier in my life on just learning and decision-making. Um, and I started giving talks on how those two disciplines could sort of have a conversation with each other. Um, so in 2012, I, I um, retired from poker and was focusing completely on these talks I was giving. I was starting to consult with companies on how to make better decisions. Um, ended up writing this book, Thinking in Bets, in 2018 as, as part of that process. And then now I have, you know, I have this other book coming out, which we'll talk about at another time, um, called How to Decide. But uh, so that, that's kind of, you know, a winding story of who I am. But that, that's, I guess, who I am. So before we move off the poker, Piece, you said that you became like somewhat successful in poker. So what does a successful career in poker look like? Can you, there's probably a lot of listeners that we have that just weren't like me and weren't like glued to ESPN and the World Series of Poker like every year when you guys were playing in this group and like watching Howard Letterer and you and, and Daniel Negreanu and all these people that I would just like love watching and and so like Phil Ivey. I used to love watching Phil Ivey play. It's just crazy. So like, He's a really good certain, player. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And I, you know, just, it was a time for me going through college. And then just when I got out of college that we would play like every, when I was, when I was in flight school, we played every day. Like that was our downtime, just playing like Texas Hold'em in, in flight school. So I am, I'm like a poker junkie. So I understand the kind of pots and the no limit stuff and what a purse is at a, at a tournament and things like that. But like, what is that? Like the gold, uh, World Series of Post Poker gold bracelet, those kind of things, just to give some context. Sure. So, uh, you know, you can kind of think about any, any sport has its championship and poker is no different. Uh, and poker has, uh, the world series of poker is really the main thing. There was also, there's also the world poker tour. There's some other ones. Um, you know, one of the ones that I mentioned that I won was the NBC national heads up championship. So that that's a particular form of poker where you're playing one-on-one. -on -one. And they bracket it like March Madness. So there's 64 players get selected to start and then you're weeding it down. Uh, and I won heads up against a player named Eric Seidel to get that title. So uh, it's like, you know, a World Series of Poker Brace, it's like a, it's like a Super Bowl ring, basically. I mean, it, it would sort of kind of be in that category. 
So, um, you know, the top players in the world are, are vying for that. It's a little different than, than most sports because uh, everything is sort of what you would think of as like a pro-am in golf. In other words, uh, poker is kind of like the great equalizer in the sense that um, anybody can play with a professional. You just have to have the money for the entry fee. So whenever you're playing in the World Series of Poker or something like that, um, there are amateurs that are that are playing as well, uh, which adds, I think, a super um, kind of fun element to the game because people can like you when you talked about your story, like you could have ended up playing against people like Phil Ivy. You could have ended up at their table, which I think is really exciting. And then there's some other events like the the National Heads Up Championship where amateurs are not playing. They're they're really just sort of selecting from the pros. So you have, but most of poker, the majority of poker is uh, anybody can enter. So, you know, what, what does success look like in poker? You know, I think it's like anything else, and I'm sure it's the same in your field. It kind of depends on what you're trying to get out of it. So, I mean, you know, objectively, obviously, if you have world championships, you're pretty successful at the game. But, you know, I, there's, there's so many people who nobody ever hears about who are playing uh, smaller limit poker. So, uh, when I was, so when I was playing, you know, I, I might play in games where I might have 50 or a hundred thousand dollars at the table at risk, right? So that would be very, very high limit. Um, but there's people who are playing in games who have a thousand dollars at risk or $500 at risk or a hundred dollars at risk, and they're making a living. It's, it's a different living, but they're out there every day, you know, putting in their hours and, and, and making that money. And it's just not at a level where anybody's ever going to necessarily put a camera on them. But I would consider that a very successful career in poker. Yeah. And the pots on these, like some of these tournaments, like the World Series of Poker is in the millions. Like that's the, to yeah. give some people some, an idea of what a World Series of Poker championship looks like. And it, it gets bigger over time. Like uh, I, I watched it go up year after year that I was watching. And the more people that enter, the more popular it got, the bigger the purses got, right? And the more people got paid. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so to give you an idea, um, I think the first time I ever played in the main event of the World Series of Poker, so this is like the big, big championship. Um, I think there were a little over 300 people who entered. And I think the biggest field that I played in, this was now after it was like on television and whatnot, was probably about 8,000 people. Um, and depending on, you know, how popular it was or sort of what was happening with online poker, um, you know, it, I think it sort of dialed back to about 2,600 and now I think it's, it's back up again. But I mean, the idea, you know, when I first started playing and I'm playing in this tournament where we were talking about how we couldn't even believe that there were like almost 400 players in the, in the event. I mean, because you have to understand in order to play in that event, you need to put up $10,000. Like, on your poker skill, you're betting on your own poker skill. And in the nineties, when it wasn't on television, there just weren't a lot of people who were willing to put that much money at risk or, or necessarily who even knew that this championship existed. So it seemed impossible to me that that, that many people were playing. I could have never fathomed that, you know, all of a sudden like 5,000 people would enter that event. That, that was crazy. So, um, you know, for a long time, I think first place was about a million um, and now in that particular event, because of the number of people, so the number of people who put up 10,000, that determines in large part how, you know, obviously how big the prize pool is and, and what first place is. 
you know, there, I think there have been people who've gotten uh, first place has been 10 million. So um, obviously a really big, a really big difference in what, what poker kind of looks like now. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember when I was when I was a uh, you know, just just got commissioned in the Navy, went up to uh, grad school, and there were a lot of play-in tournaments then. So all these tournaments, you'd you'd put in a bunch of money, and then because there, I couldn't even consider it ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars to me then was like no way. Like I I can't even come up with food to go through the Taco Bell drive-through at that point. It was like like hundred bucks, two hundred bucks was a lot of money to me then, and it changes over time. And, uh, but there were a lot of play in tournaments that I think then sparked it. And then, you know, when some amateurs started doing really well and winning, it was like, oh, anybody can win this thing. It's not just the, the professionals then. So it was a really cool kind of movement at that time that I saw. And we have a lot of people in our community that were previous professional poker players or still play in the tournament today. I know quite a few house flippers and, and things that it's, it feels almost like they kind of go a little bit together. And I know we'll talk about that today. Yeah. So, um, so, so actually you, so you bring up something interesting. So, so even when I was, when I first started out, there were what are called satellite tournaments, which would be play in tournaments, which would mean, uh, so, so the simplest example would be if the prize pool is, if the buy-in is 10,000, let's imagine that 10 people put up a thousand each and they play a little mini tournament and whoever wins that mini tournament would then have 10,000 and they'd get to go into the, into the $10,000 tournament. But there were a variety of, of those where, you know, you'd pay, uh, generally if it was a one table, it would, it would, your buy-in would be about a t- obviously a 10th of, of the prize, but then they would have uh, multi-table tournaments where, um, you know, maybe you could put up a hundredth of the prize. And if you won, you could get a seat into the, into the main event. Um, but all of those had to happen in a physical location. So, so it was very hard to get that many people together. And so, so mostly it was like you'd have to put up a, a tenth of it. So if you wanted to get into the main event of the World Series of Poker through like a play-in tournament or a satellite tournament, you'd still have to have a thousand, which is, which is like a, a big amount. The big change was when internet poker came around. Now, all of a sudden, you didn't need everybody in the same physical location. And so now all of a sudden you could maybe play your way in for 40 bucks. So you, you'd, you'd enter for $40 and that might get you into another tournament that would then get you into another tournament. And you could sort of build your way up until you had your $10,000 entry. Or sometimes there were just enough people who wanted to pay 40 that there was enough in the prize pool that the winner of that might just directly get the 10,000. So one, one of the biggest pivot points in poker was there, there's, uh, in 2002 or 2003, I think it was 2003. Um, this was a year actually that I got pretty deep in that tournament. I think I, I came in maybe like 30 something or I don't know. I got, I got, I got very deep in that tournament, but, uh, there was a powerhouse final table, which Phil Ivy was included in. Um, but a guy who had, uh, got in in there for about $40 uh, was at this final table. So he had started online for 40 bucks, gotten his way into this $10,000 tournament, made it to the final table and against a pretty powerhouse final table, like really great players. He ended up winning and his name was Chris Moneymaker, which really helped because obviously you couldn't ask for a better name for someone who did that. And it created this explosion in poker. And I, and I imagine this, this probably rings true for you when something that you do professionally, all of a sudden people decide, oh, this would be a really interesting thing to put a camera on and start filming. So 
so I imagine there's some parallels here. So we're all playing in this championship. We're all, you know, every single year we're playing poker and we couldn't even imagine that someone, oh, they're going to put a camera on what we do and start filming it. But this is what happens. Chris Moneymaker ends up winning this tournament for 40 bucks. And now, as you said, now everybody feels like, well, I could do that and I, I could win. Now, they're not thinking about the fact that um, he was playing against some of the best players in the world. It just happens that poker has quite a bit of luck involved in it. And there's no question that he was not better than those players. But because he won, people had that, that idea, I could win. And because it was on television, uh, they all knew about it. And all of a sudden you had people thinking, I'm just going to go become a professional poker player and somehow I'm going to make money at this. So I'm just, just going to turn it on you and ask, when you saw all these house flipping shows all of a sudden become so popular on TV, did a similar thing happen where people, everybody was like, oh yeah, I could do that. I'll just go buy a house and I'll just flip it. And then I'll just, I'll make a bunch of money and I'll get to retire from my other job. So absolutely. Um, the interesting thing is though, you're talking to one of the guys who was watching that show to get into house flipping. So like I'm one of the people who, I, I don't know, if, if those shows weren't on TV, I may not have transitioned from a military career to a uh, real estate investment career like I had. And so there were definitely a catalyst for me and a lot of other people. And I think, you know, the market plays into that too. Like, you know, like when your hairdresser is flipping houses and stuff like that in 2007, 2006, it's, we have these kind of bubble things. Anybody can make money. The market's going up, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and even right now, it seems like every, it's, it's, people are just so interested. It, but it definitely helps us too as, as flippers. Oh, because- trust me. So in, in poker, first of all, a lot of really great players came out of that situation mm-hmm. where they saw it on television and thought, oh, I'll go and do that. The key is that uh, not everybody could do it, right? So some great players came out of it, like, you know, sort of, you, you sounds like you have a similar situation. But let, let me be clear, while it, may, it, it, it was this thing where people thought it looked so easy, and if Chris Moneymaker can do it, so can I, and maybe that gave some people the wrong idea, it created an amazing influx into the game. And because the prize pools are determined by how many people are willing to play, um, trust me, there was no poker player who was mad about it. It yeah. was like, come on in, like, this is great that you want to play. So, so uh, from the perspective of the people who are already in the game, it was incredible. And then from the perspective of this huge influx of players who came into the game, some of them did end up becoming amazing players who completely started their life either online or because they saw it on television. And most of the best players today would probably go into that category, but we're not seeing all the people who also sort of had that idea of I'm going to try that and I'll quit my job and whatever. And they didn't succeed. Yep. You know, it's funny because we talked a little bit pre-show about, um, about this exact concept, like um, coming in here and then, becoming really great at what you do, but you don't see the, the hard work, the struggles, like the people who don't make it. And then it also allows this opportunity for these the folks to come in. Like for me, um, I, I feel like I, I, had the, I had the skills, I had the leadership skills, I, had, I could understand the knowledge, the background to build out a team and, and, and do really well and be successful. But there's also a lot of people that, that jumped in and just it, wa- it wasn't for them. They figured out this isn't for me. This isn't what I want to do. And they went to, f- to do something else. I- I'm, I'm actually, I actually really love the fact that you told the Chris Moneymaker story because that, it was so interesting that when I didn't get that spot, like that was the year that I would have gone and like an amateur won. So it gives me, it was like, oh my gosh, like I, I, I want to go play in this tournament now. And I could, that could have been me. Like it, had I gotten second instead of third, like 
I, I could have been the Chris moneymaker yeah. of, of that tournament potentially. And this guy's winning like million. I, what was it? I don't know what the person was then, like $2 million or something. It was it's a I lot can, of money. I can't, I mean, gosh, you know, they all blend together. Yeah. It, like it, was, it was in the million. I, feel, I know it was more than a million. Um, Me too, because I was like, I was 23 years old and I was like, oh my gosh, I, like that's, that's I it. I want to be a millionaire year. when I'm 40 or 50. I feel like it was the first year there was more than a million. I, I feel like it might've been three. I'm not sure. But I'll, it was, I'll look it up. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes and we'll, yeah, we'll look at yeah, it again. Yeah. But, but it was, I, I mean, you know, it was definitely, definitely becoming an instant millionaire then. And for me, like, I think I came to that tournament with $500. I mean, there was a lot of people at this tournament. It was, it was in a, a location like that. There were like 50 tables, 40 tables or something. There's a ton of people here in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, like playing, like, I, pl I had to play for two days to get to that final table. Yeah. And I, I won a lot of money. Like, I, don't get me wrong. I won like $3,000 or something, $4,000. Um, it just wasn't, wasn't that like, and we had so many people, it, it was only supposed to be the top one person and the top person got their plane fare taken care of their hotel, the, the ticket, all the food while they were there, all that stuff, spending money. And then we had so many people enter at the last minute that they, they ended up having enough money to make a second place person. They just didn't get the airfare and hotel. So like really cool stuff. And it's funny that, I don't know, to hear it from your perspective, because for me, what it, what all of the TV shows have done and this excitement and even talking to you uh, ahead of time, you're like, oh, that's so cool that what you do, you know, and, and I've always like kind of watch that stuff. And what it does is it brings for me, what's been great about it is it brings in private lenders. So people who don't oh. actually want to do it, but they want to be a part of it. Like they, they don't have the skill set, they don't understand, but they want to say that they're part of it. Like they invest in a flipping business. Yeah. Well, we, we can raise millions of dollars from other people who just kind of want to play in that world, but not necessarily be a part of it. It's like, it's like all the people that watch watch you guys playing poker and play at home and they want to like say that they're poker players but they're not professional poker players they're not going to vegas to risk you know ten thousand dollar buy-in or anything but it creates this kind of um this kind of um like popularity in that that it's kind of mainstream and then also what it does is it allows us when we go into a home with the seller and market they don't think that we're like taking advantage of them or anything they actually we were able to show that it's somewhat legitimate. It's on TV. It gives us some legitimacy in what we do. And so oh, I think it's a lot of imagine, So let me ask you. So before it was on television, because I'm just thinking about like the way that, so I think about decisions and the way that people would sort of think about this decision, you know, there's certain things that we anchor to and certain things that we don't see. So I assume that um, a potential buyer might see what you bought the property for. And then feel oh, yeah. like, wait a minute, you just bought it a few months ago and now you want to sell it for 50% more than what you bought it for. You're ripping me off. Um, because they obviously don't see the work in between. And, and the other thing that people don't see is risk, right? So they don't understand. It's very hard for people to understand that, uh, yes, but there was risk to you holding the property and there was risk to you um, uh, putting money into the property. So, because uh, all sorts of things could happen during the time that you hold it, right? Like uh, there could be a pandemic or something like that, um, you know, or, you know, suddenly the, you know, there could be the mortgage crisis in the time that you're holding something. So there, there's risk that you're taking on. And essentially what you're being paid for is not just the physical upgrades to the house, but the, the willingness to take on the risk, right? So I would imagine that prior to, um, prior to uh, it being on television, there must have been people who thought 
this seems really ridiculous. Like you're predatory and you must be taking advantage of me because this is I can see what the house sold for. And maybe that now there's less of that because it's sort of been unveiled. Like the process has been unveiled and what's actually going on and people understand what the value is that you're bringing a little bit more. Yeah, I, I would agree. That's true. Um, we still get that all the time. Oh. <laughs> I get the, I, I'll put a house on the market and I'll get, I'll, I'll actually, I'll tell you where it's probably the worst right now for us is the appraisers. An appraiser will come in and thinks he knows my business and we're not getting a high enough appraisal because he's saying you bought this for, I mean, we have actually gone back and fought the appraisal and he's like, well, he's like, you're just a flipper. Like you bought it for this and you couldn't have put in any more than $25,000 and yeah, like it shouldn't even be worth, I, I mean, I, I, had an, I had two appraisers tell me that over the last year and I went ballistic because I was like, you have no idea. I have holding costs, I have insurance, I have taxes, I have uh, cost of money, I have interest. You don't know how long I held it for. You don't know the risk that I took. And you, you don't think that I should make money? Like, this is my business. I don't come tell you how much you should charge for your appraisals. And frankly, I think you should give me this one for free or I should, you should be paying me to talk to me like that. Like, it was, it was frustrating with uh, some people. Yeah, but absolutely, I, mean, I, I think it's that. really, th this kind of goes into everything, right? Like, people, people don't really, the thing that people have really a hard time with is, is understanding uncertainty and that, that there's a price to uncertainty, which is really what you're talking about. So from the appraiser standpoint, they're kind of looking at it as if you can imagine they're looking at it as if it was a guaranteed outcome that uh, it would have cost you what it cost you to renovate the house, which we know is not guaranteed. It's a guaranteed outcome that somehow uh, the, you know, the market would be up and would not have cratered. Right or even a guaranteed outcome that the market would have been flat or that the market uh, only went down uh, enough that you could still make maybe a little bit of profit, like that everything would have turned out the way it was and you would have an intact house that looks really good and a market that you could actually sell it into. And once this is part of the problem and you can kind of see this in how poker play, you know, you can think about this from the poker standpoint as well, that once we know what the outcome is, here's your house, it's good. So now shouldn't you only get, you know, I'm going to decide what a reasonable profit is given it uh, that this is the way it turned out, that what gets overshadowed is all the different ways that that could have ended up, uh, you know, all the different results that that could have ended up, uh, you know, that you could have ended up seeing. So there's the result you see, but then there's also, um, it turns out that there was something that you didn't see in the house that was so horrible that it needed to be a teardown. Right. I mean, that would be like the extreme sort of bad end. Right. And then, uh, you know, on the extreme good end would be a lot more things went right than they did. It all got done much faster than it was than you expected and so on and so forth. So we have to think about the whole set of ways that things could possibly go. And then what you're really pricing in is all of that stuff, which includes things like your holding costs. And, um, you know, there's obviously, you know, the cost of capital, um, but you're pricing that risk, the fact that the that the outcome isn't guaranteed. But what happens to people is once they know the outcome, they act as if it sort of was guaranteed. So in poker, when, when I enter a pot, I could, there's all sorts of ways that that hand could turn out, right? I mean, obviously there's sort of the win-loss binary, but then within that, there's how much money do I lose? How much money do I win? And so that creates a similar kind of continuum. But once you know that I won, whether I won the hand or lost the hand, um, what happens to our minds is we sort of try to create a uh, sense of that that doesn't include all the different ways that it could have turned out. So it feels like it was sort of destined to be that way. And it just creates a lot of errors in the way that we think. 
not just about the ways that like appraisers might, might treat you in terms of your appraisal, but also as we're trying to think about how do we learn from the way that things have turned out from us. If I, if I have a house that I make a ton of money on versus a house that I lose money on, on that individual house, like what, what lessons am I supposed to learn from that in terms of improving my decision-making going forward? And that's actually really hard. And it's something we're really bad at. You know, uh, when I fly with the flight students down in Pensacola, um, I fly with very early students that um, have only flown a Cessna 172 primarily, like a small single engine trainer plane. And we put them in a 1100 horsepower, seven and a half G's, G suit, ejection seat, a full glass cockpit, heads up display, FMS. Uh, it's a it's it's got twice the horsepower that the airplane that I learned how to fly on in the Navy, you know, you know 18 years ago. And they get in and they make a bunch of mistakes and we, they fly with the same person. So they have 12 flights before they're solo. They have a bunch of simulators, ground school, stuff like that. They have 12 flights. Um, eight, you know, nine of those are flown with the same instructor. And so we get this on wing and I always told my on wings, I've had I've probably 15 students that I've trained through that. They go to do their check ride, then they go on their first solo, fly by themselves in that plane with, with about uh, 15 to 20 hours of flight time in it. That's it. To go up, go to the working area, do five landings, come home. And I tell them, I want you to make every single mistake possible with me. Like, uh, I, I don't care if you make mistakes. Like, don't beat yourself up. I'm not going to beat you up if you make mistakes. I'm going to tell you that you did. I'm going to correct it. I'm going to help you. But my requirement of you is that you don't make the same mistake twice. Mm -hmm. And that tells me that you're not learning and you're not, you're not replaying that play in your mind, that thing that you did, that mistake that you made. You're not actually like taking it in, understanding it. And I tell our students, our, our house flipping and wholesaling students, the same thing, really. Like, you're going to make mistakes out there. What, what, we, what we provide as a company is hopefully you can skip some of the mistakes and we can educate you on them ahead of time. So you don't have to make them. You can learn from other people's mistakes. But I, I feel like the flight students, like, they just need, because I want them to make all these mistakes with me. I don't want them to go. I want them to see it all. I'll give them all the EP, all the emergency procedures, all the problems, all the issues. I'll, I'll put them in crosswinds. I'll take them places. I'll challenge them. I'll be, I'll be really hard on them. Give them the hardest flight possible. So when they show up to their check ride, it's the easiest day they've ever had, the easiest hour and 15 minute flight they've ever had. And they've made all the mistakes with me so they don't have to make them on their check ride. And I think for me, that was the big challenge that I had as I was building my business and growing my company and, and everything that I've done in the past is like, understand that I made a mistake. It's okay. How can I learn from it? so that I don't make that same one again, but I'm probably gonna make others and just be open to it. And I think that's, that's probably what you guys saw a lot is constantly replaying the hands that you played at the end of the night. And I think that's what makes a professional versus somebody who just goes, ah, I just had a bad beat there, it's unlucky. Uh, I'm, I'll, do the, I'll do it again tomorrow. And they make the same mistakes again. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, so I, I think that, so, so I agree. And I think that, that we need to go like one, level deeper, which is what, what is a mistake? Okay. And I think that this is where things get really hard. So if we just think about, if, if we just think about sort of the way that luck can influence things, let's assume that we knew for a fact that I made a good decision. I could uh, win and have things turn out well, given my good decision, but I could also lose, right? You can make a perfectly good decision. You can invest in a house that, that is, uh, has a lot of expected value to it, right? A lot of upside potential and just stuff can go wrong. The market could go down, whatever. 
and you can end up losing despite the fact that, that the decision itself was really good, right? And then same thing sort of flipped is you can make a terrible decision uh, and you could have that work out really well. And you could make a terrible decision and you could have that work out really poorly. So we can get this, you can think about it as a two by two, right? So we have this four ways that these things can be related. So this is kind of problem number one is that if we haven't sort of uh, really engaged in a really good decision process in advance where we have some recording of that process, when we try to do that look back, it becomes really difficult because all we can see is the outcome, right? And now we're trying to figure out Given that I won or lost, did I actually make a good decision? And, and here's, here's the problem that, that we have is that we connect those things together a little bit too tightly. It's called resulting. So I've done this with a billion different groups. I talk about it in Thinking in Bats. Um, and I, I actually opened the new book with this exercise as well. But um, so I say, what's the best decision that you made of the last year? What's the worst decision that you made of the last year? And the people listening, just take a second and think about what's the best decision you made of the last year and what's the worst decision you made of the last year. So everybody just stop for a second and think about it. Now, I want to follow that with a question, if everybody has that in their head. When you think about the best decision, did it turn out well? And when you think about the worst decision, did it turn out poorly? I'm still waiting to come across somebody who answers no to that. I mean, because everybody says yes. When we're thinking back on what's the best decision that I made, it's usually like the house you made the most money on, you think was the best decision that you made. When you think about the worst decision you made, it's probably a house that you lost money on. And so as we're thinking about that, that's generally going to go into sort of on top level, what do we think a mistake is? And you're probably going to think that investing in the house that lost is a mistake and investing in the house that won was not a mistake. But that is not necessarily true. We can invest in houses where there were other opportunities, other ways to deploy capital that would have been a lot better. We can invest in houses where we really blow the timeline, but something happens out in the world where there's just like some, you know, you just end up making a lot of money on it anyway, even though there were, you made lots of mistakes. Maybe even the original decision to choose that as the property that you weren't going to invest in was, was a mistake. So, so we lose, we lose the ability to sort of see through to that. And then with the house that lost a bunch of money, it may very well be that no mistakes were made. Literally no mistakes were made. That the decision were sound, that if you could go back and do it again, you would invest, what, given what you knew at the time, you would totally invest in that. So I think that's number one, that's that luck relationship is how are we sort of parsing out the fact that in our lives, whether it's investing in houses or the any other decision that we make, that you're going to have uh, decisions that fit into all four categories. Great decision, great outcome. Great decision, bad outcome. Bad decision, good outcome. Bad decision, bad outcome. And that we need to think back. As we're thinking back, we have to really think very clearly about what, what category it fits in. So that's kind of this, the way that luck is kind of messing things up. But then we have this other problem where we're thinking mistake, which has to do with um, hidden information. So in poker... It's not just that I don't have control over the card that's going to come. It's also that I can't see what you have. And obviously, uh, in houses, you can't necessarily look behind the walls. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that might be concealed from you. So whenever you're making a decision, there's just lots of stuff that you don't know. Some of the stuff you don't know because you don't have a time machine, right? So, so we don't know 
what exactly is going to happen to the market in this area? Who's going to move in next door? <laughs> right? Like, you don't know, is someone going to sell that house? And then like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's going to become like some sort of drug den next door to you. Like you just don't have control over that. And there's just all sorts of stuff that if you had a time machine, obviously you would make a different decision, but you don't have a time machine. So you don't know those things. Uh, and then there may be stuff that you don't know um, that might have uh, been knowable, but you didn't actually find out about it. So generally what we think is that, again, when we go back to that idea that if we lose on a house, we think of it as a mistake, right? That sometimes some of that stuff isn't a mistake because either you didn't have a time machine or the thing that you didn't know about wasn't something that you knew you were supposed to know about. You didn't know that there was a certain inspection that you really had to do because that's how you learn from experience. So it wasn't really a mistake that you didn't do that. The only thing that would be a mistake, as you just said, is if having discovered that that was really important information to have, that you didn't then include it in your decision process going forward. And this is, this is part of the problem is that when we go in and we're making decisions and there's information that we don't have, very often when it turns out that that would have been information that was really crucial, would have been crucial for you to know, it would have, it, maybe it would have changed your decision given how things turn out, that we view it as a mistake that we didn't find that information out. But that's only true if you knew that you needed it. So I think that we have this kind of knee-jerk way that we think about like what's a mistake and what's not a mistake. And we need to understand like it's a lot more complicated than that. And a lot of the things that we think are mistakes actually aren't. But also, this is really important. A lot of the things that we think aren't mistakes actually are. Yeah. You know, th th this, is, this is the kind of like, you, you took the way that I think about things and like turned it on its head in this book, Thinking and Best. And as, as I'm reading through it, I'm just going, I'm challenging a lot of things. You actually use a uh, analogy of a football game. Uh, or, or you told the story of the football game, right? And at the end, you said, you said it in there, like, he left the game and he's not losing any sleep. And I was like, over that decision. And I was like, that, that really was profound to me because like, I, what I, in the military, I've had to make, so I was a helicopter pilot in the Navy and we fly pretty low, pretty fast, as, as low as we go, especially when we're doing like combat search and rescue or dropping off the seals or we're picking people up at a ship or we're flying at, at this ship that's rocking and rolling at night and it's dark and it's rainy and, and stuff like that. And we have to, you know, move people around or whatever we're doing. And what I found was the really, really good pilots, the really, really good aircraft commanders, the people that signed for a $30 million helicopter and are in charge of, you know, 10 different people in the, in the, in the aircraft, things like that. And sometimes you're in charge of, you know, three or four different helicopters are flying in formation, uh, doing a mission or something. And the really good people are the people that can take in all the information quickly and make a decision and stand by the decision and not second guess themselves. So for me, I always thought about it of like, why was I good at doing that? And I think, you know, becoming a helicopter pilot, being put in lots of different scenarios. So we, we like pre, we pre plan everything. We handle all the scenarios. What are the contingencies? What are the outcome? What's the tripwire? If this happens, then what would we do? And just knowing that I've, I've run through it in the beginning and that I have to use my skills, my background, my bag of tricks, like my experience box to make, pull something out, make a decision quickly and stand by it. 
And then at the end, I know that if I make the wrong decision or what appears to be the wrong decision, because we, we messed it up, we violated some airspace, we you know, crushed the tail, we, we crashed the helicopter, whatever happened, that I have to stand at the end of a very long table with a lot of, of brass that look at me and say, why did you do that? And what I always thought in my head, my answer is always, I, I had only this amount of information. And with that amount of information combined with my experience, resulted in the decision that I made and I stand by it right now. I realize that now we're stepping back. You can see the whole picture. You know what the weather is going to be. You know what the forecast is and you know how the weather turned out. And what you think you would have done if you were sitting in my seat under the pressure that I was under. But all I said to myself and what I always teach my students is if you can stand at that table and say that I made that decision with the information that I had, my skill set and everything, and that's all you can do. Like, that's it. And, and, and then you just have to deal with the consequences at the end because I've been on those boards. I've been there when somebody crashed a helicopter or somebody killed somebody. And they, we're sitting there getting, I mean, we're doing all the research, all the data, measuring things. It's like, I, I actually think they made a pretty good decision based on what they had, you know? And so this was interesting because I, I'm, I'm really like thinking, how do you protect yourself from making good decisions with bad outcomes, right? Can you, like, can I protect, can I make better decisions? So, so the answer is, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's complicated. So you got, you actually got to quite a bit of it in, in the, that really lovely description that you just gave of, you know, what's happening to you in, in a helicopter where, where something might go wrong. And as you're thinking about that decision, um, how do you figure out if it was a good decision or a bad decision? Right. And, and you have to, what you just said is really true. You have to put yourself as closely as possible into the state of knowledge that the decision maker had at the time that they made the decision. So they don't, they can't know that the weather is going to end up bad. They can't know, you know, and you have to be, be thinking about that all the time and get down into that. Now, here's the thing. There's, there's kind of two secrets to unlocking. Can, can you actually have some control over increasing the probability that outcomes turn out well for you? And the answer is absolutely yes. So, uh, and, and a lot of it is kind of in, in, that, in that, again, that narrative that you just gave that was so great. I just want to sort of carry you around with me to tell people that narrative. It was very good. Um, so th there's only two things that determine how your life turns out. One is luck and one is, hit it, uh, is your decisions. And that's it. So um, luck is a thing that you can't do anything about. And I know that people say you make your own luck, but it's not true. What you do is you make decisions that have a different probability of good luck happening versus bad luck happening. So uh, I can think about a decision where 60% of the time I'm going to have a great outcome and 40% of the time I'm going to have a poor one versus a decision where 80% of the time I'm going to have a good outcome and 20% of the time I'm going to have a poor outcome. Lux influence is exactly the same because that by definition, I don't have any control over it. And all it means when I say 80% of the time I'm going to have a good outcome, 20% of the time I'm going to have a bad one is that 20% of the time that I make a decision of the, that's exactly like this, I'll observe a bad outcome. And I have no control over whether it's this particular time or not. And this is part of where we get tripped up right? The helicopter crashes, somebody dies. We know there's any time that you get in the helicopter and you set off on a mission, there's some percentage of the time that you're going to get an outcome like that. So the question is, was this built into a good decision process? Because we know sometimes we're going to have 
poor outcomes. And we just happen to be observing the bad one right now. Or were there decisions made that increased the probability of that occurring in a way that we don't want to tolerate? So what, that's why I say it's either luck or the quality of your decisions. And you can't do anything about luck. You can just sort of observe it. The quality of your decisions turn is what really decides what's the distribution of good outcomes to bad outcomes. And the better our decision process, the better that distribution is going to look for us. Right? We're just going to increase the probability that good stuff is happening to us. And as we sort of grind that over a lot of decisions, those edges, that extra money that we're sort of picking off the table or the extra happiness or the extra health, whatever it is that we're trying to, to get the social cohesion, you know, that's going to realize over time. But we, what we have to realize is that we can't ever guarantee it on a particular time. We can make a billion great decisions across the set of houses that we choose to invest in, but we can't guarantee that any single one of them is going to win. We just know that across the set, they will win. And our job as a decision maker is to understand that we don't want to get too indexed on one house losing. We need to think across the set of decisions that we're making because our job is to make sure that the probability, our win weight goes up. That's what we care about, right? So this is where... The question is, so how do you actually do that, right? How do we sort of get untethered to the individual result that we happen to see as opposed to the set of results we see and learn really good lessons and create a good decision process that's going to help us do that? So the first thing has to do with how do we look back at, at things? And we just talked about that a little bit, right? You have to sort of consider that it could be in any of those four categories, right? Like an earned reward um, you know, just what you deserved, uh, bad luck or, or dumb luck, right? Bad luck or good luck. And we need to sort of think about, so where is this actually sitting? And we need to do what you were just talking about, which is try to put ourselves into the state of knowledge that we were in at the time of the decision. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the first thing that we have to do as much as we possibly can. If there's something in there that would have increased the probability of a good outcome in terms of the, the knowledge that we had, we want to ask, is this something that we could know about in the future? So some of that, the answer is going to be no. It would have required a time machine. I would have needed to see that the weather was going to turn poor, which I can't. I mean, I looked at the weather report and that we know those are probabilistic. Some of it is going to be, yes, if I had done an inspection on the foundation, I would have discovered this. So let me make sure that I, I get a better inspector or actually do that inspection that I didn't do. So that's fine. But this actually unlocks for us how do we become a better decision maker is to actually do that stuff in advance because the lesson from all of this is that it's really, really, really hard in retrospect to actually untether yourself from an individual outcome, to untether yourself from that disastrous house that you tried to flip and you, you know it went down 20%, like you actually lost money on it. It's hard to untether ourselves from that house that you invested in that you thought was going to make 10% and it ended up making 30%. And now you think it was like a genius move, much a much more genius move than the other houses that would have had the same expectation, right? So it's hard to sort of get out from under that. So the more that we can have a decision process that allows us to record our state of knowledge at the time that we actually make the decision, we now have a way to look back and to say, all right, let's think about what revealed itself after the fact and was this included in our process? And now we don't get as distorted. We can sort of get out from under 
the individual results that we're seeing. So when we lose on a house, we can go back and we can say, well, what were we thinking at the time? Would we have really changed anything? Because we actually have a record of it. And now we can actually start to create better feedback loops. The, the last thing that I'll say, and I think this is so important in um, being a better decision maker, is that you have to, again, stop thinking about did I win or lose and start thinking much more just what was the quality of the decision. And it's not that you shouldn't care at all about the result. Because obviously, if you never cared about the result, you might not ever go back and look at a decision because you just sort of make the assumption, well, it was good and I just happened to lose. So we don't want to do that. But what we want to do is sort of change what is it about the result that makes me want to go back and look at the process. And this is actually a really, this is a really important change that people can make. Generally, what makes us go back and look at the process is that something bad happens. We get a bad result. We lose on a house. A helicopter crashes. These kinds of things happen. And so when that happens, when we have an unexpectedly poor outcome, we'll say, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to now look at the process for the decision. I'm going to figure out whether I made a bad decision here. So I invest in a house. Uh, you know, let's say that I, I, you know, the total investment, if I think about, you know, holding costs and uh, what kind of upgrades I'm making and how much I actually bought and it for and so on and so forth. Like, let's say it's like 150,000. And my expectation is that I should be able to sell that for uh, $200,000. And I actually end up selling it at break even. Everybody's in a room. What happened? We were supposed to make 50,000 on this project. We ended up breaking even. Let's go back and look at the process. Let's do all that, that digging around and so on and so forth. That probably sounds pretty familiar. But yeah, now yes. let's, let's assume that you, you estimated that you were going to make 200000 on it and you end up making two thirty. Are you having like an all-day offsite about what the hell happened with this property? No. Are we're you patting going, yourself on the back because you're a freaking genius? Yeah, we're, we're partying. We're going to Chili's to have some, uh, some exactly cheaper. Right. But notice in both cases, something unexpected happened, right? So, so what happens because we treat outcomes this way, because we get so indexed on, on what well, we lost and we want to know why, is that a very small loss, like that isn't even that unexpected, right? It would be pretty in the range of things that could happen. We'll trigger these big dives into, you know, deconstructing the decision, but pretty large and unexpected wins won't. But what we really care about, because we're investors, and this is not just real estate investing, any decision you make is an invest investment. You're investing your time. You're investing your social capital. You're giving up other opportunities. If I choose to spend all my time trying to learn guitar, um, that is time that I can't use to play tennis or learn how to skydive or, you know, read a novel, right? Like uh, there's cost to everything that we do. So they're all investments. What happens is that, you know, again, like these very, we, losses shouldn't matter so much unless they're unexpected. But when should matter when they're unexpected. So we should care that they're unexpected because here's the thing about the investments that we make. It's just as bad to under allocate your money as it is to over allocate your money. So if you invest in a property where the expectation is that it's, you should be able to sell it at 200 and you sell it at 160, 
that might mean that you over allocated your capital to that decision. That's for sure really bad. But if you, if you invested in a property that should exit at 200 and it ends up making 250, that's a sign that you may be under allocating in that market. And you also don't want to do that either because you want to put your capital to work uh, in the places that are going to make the most money. So if you're not looking and saying, wow, we had this really unexpectedly great result, what's wrong with our model? We have a model of, that drives our decision making. We have ideas about what makes something a good investment. This one, we really underestimated. It, was it a fluke? Was it just due to luck and stuff that we couldn't have foreseen? Or is there something in there where now we can actually make better allocations of our capital because there's something to be learned in there? And nobody's doing that. Nobody's looking at that stuff. And that's actually, if I could get everybody to change one thing about their decision-making behavior, that would be the thing is that you should care about things that are unexpected, not things where you win or lose. And that means that you've gotta be looking really hard at, at situations where you unexpectedly won as well. And that's gonna make you a much better decision maker because you're gonna learn a lot more and your, your decisions are gonna improve. I wanna draw a through line here to some of the listeners that, that might help them uh, in what we talk about a lot is, um, one thing that we looked at in our company with our sales reps is they're going into the house. So, so you know, Annie, our sales reps go into the house. Um, we go directly to the seller. So we're not like buying off the MLS, foreclosures. Typically, we're going to the seller and we're negotiating with them. And we have salespeople that go in there. And sometimes it's us. Sometimes we hire some folks. And for me, my sales team, I look at their close percentage. Like how many houses do they contract and how many actually go to closing? So sometimes they don't go to closing because we might have bought them too high. Sometimes they don't go to closing because there's title issues that we can't work through or things like that. But primarily what I look at is that don't close because we can't sell the contract potentially as a wholesaler, or we might find things that aren't working when we go inspect the property and we over, we overbought. And so a lot of investors will think that a hundred percent close ratio. So like a hundred percent of the houses that close is okay. Like that's great, right? No, that's a disaster. No, I know, I know, but you know that and I know that. And I'm trying to draw the through line to people who yeah. might not understand the 230 or 250 and under allocation because that's exactly what you're talking about. It's a disaster because it means we're leaving so much money on the table. Like if 100% of our properties close, it means we're, not, we're, we're missing out on opportunities. And so we find this sweet spot. And for us, we want to be around 20% fallout. It, just what I've noticed when we run the numbers, the analytics and things like that is I want to be closing about 80% of the properties. Because that means that we're being aggressive. We had a sales rep who she would make huge spreads. She would, all of her deals would be like $35,000, $40,000 assignments. And almost everything that she did would go to closing. And at that time, I wasn't holding them as accountable as I should. I didn't have a COO. I was doing lots of other things. And when I started to recognize that this was happening, I was like, man, she is really good. Like we're getting huge deals, huge reps on these things, massive commissions, assignments. And I said, I don't know if we've ever dropped the contract that she put in the, in the hopper. So as I started digging and looking at the numbers, like she, she, was, making, she was making offers so low that she, she needed to be more aggressive. She needed to bring in more $20,000 deals and $18,000 deals. So then I started pushing her to be more aggressive and more aggressive. And all of our sales reps, we look at this really closely. So this is exactly, like we teach this on the closing side, which is exactly what Annie was talking about when 
if you're buying a property and you're making an extra $40,000, what you're probably doing is you're probably missing out on a lot of opportunity because what you're doing is underestimating the, the offer price and where you could have bought three more houses as long as you had enough capital to do that, which all of you should because I teach you how, and you go out and buy three more houses, renovate them and make you know, four, four houses of $30,000 instead of one house of 52,000 because nobody's taking your offers. So this is exactly what that is. And we talk about it all the time. And I hope, I hope people understand that because that is so, so important in everything that we do. And hopefully that, like that through line does match and you agree with me, but 100% close ratio is not good. I'm going to tie, hopefully I'm going to put a little bow on it. Let's do it. So one of the things that, that happens and, and, this naturally happens in our minds, but this also can be a leadership issue in terms of the people that you're managing is that, uh, we're all kind of, so, so I'm not sure that I put a name to it, but when, when you're sort of connecting, you know, the outcome to the quality of the decision, like in that exercise we just did where it was like, you know, what's your best decision of the last year? What's the worst decision of the last year? And it's always like a good outcome that you're actually describing or a bad outcome that you're actually describing. Uh, this is called resulting. And you can see why it's called resulting. It's like you take the result, you know if the result is good or bad, and then you use that to tell you whether the decision is good or bad. But we know because of like luck and hidden information and whatnot that the result is actually not perfectly correlated with the quality of the decision. And so we get in trouble because of this resulting thing. But our minds really, really work this way. So on our own, we tend to try to avoid losses. Because when we lose, we feel like, oh, I must have made a really bad decision. And that doesn't feel really good, right? Like that's sort of a bad decision is assault, an assault on our identity. And we like to really protect our identity. I'm a really good real estate investor who goes out and negotiates good deals. And so if I lose something, I all of a sudden feel like, oh, the immediate thing, right? What, what, what is a mistake? We talked about that, right? It feels like a mistake. And now what's going to happen is that the decisions that you're going to make you make are going to be to try to ever avoid losing because we don't want to actually have to feel that we don't want to have to sort of square that up and and try to figure out a way to sort of maintain our identity as like you know great decision makers and a awesome person um when you know because it takes some work to sort of get get yourself around the fact that you you had a bad outcome now if you think about it from a leadership perspective how are we now reinforcing that behavior because the way the only way let me just back up a second the only way to avoid losing is to be too conservative so it's which is what you just talked about right if you have someone making offers that are never the deal is never ever going to break that means they're probably offering too much and you know, so on and so forth, right? They're just being too conservative. They're, they're offering something that's going to make sure that that deal is always going to go through, which means that they're not taking on enough risk, right? They're not going to be deploying, you know, they're not going to be taking enough chance, which means they're going to be leaving money on the table. But it's a way to guarantee that every deal closes, which is, this is the reason why you don't want that to happen, obviously, because they're being too conservative. Now, how as leadership do we reinforce that? Well, I'm going to go back to this idea of what's getting you in a room. Is it only when you lose that you're in a room and you're asking someone to defend their actions? Because if that's the case, what you're doing is taking this natural thing that people do, which is, ah, I don't ever want to have a bad outcome because then I'm going to have to sort of, you know, defend myself against this. So now in front of that, I'm going to make decisions that are overly conservative in order to try to guarantee that I never have anything bad happen. If as a leadership, 
you're only putting them in a room when something bad happens. What do you think you just did? You just reinforced to them, by the way, don't ever have a bad outcome. Because if you have a bad outcome, you're now going to be in this room and you're going to be defending yourself. So you're encouraging them to behave in this very conservative manner, manner. Another thing you're encouraging is like false consensus. Because one way to get out of that is to say, well, everybody agreed with me. Another thing you're doing is you're encouraging status quo, people not innovating. Because then they, they can say, well, this is the way we always have done it. So you can't get mad at me like I followed the rules, right? So you're not ever going to get any, you know, innovative way of thinking about a deal or structuring a deal or maybe going into a different space or, you know, bringing that to you where maybe they're trying to push the boundaries a little bit because they think there's money on the table because that's going to be harder for them to defend. So you've just created stagnation, consensus, and, and being too conservative where uh, there is no doubt that there's going to be money left on the table in those situations. You can see how that happens. like. One of the sort of best examples that, that I can give of like how that happens is that I, I feel like it's very confusing for, for people to think about, you know, how do you have a, a company like IBM in the 1980s? And they've got all the money, they've got the whole market, they've got all the eyeballs, they already have the loyal consumers, they've got all of this stuff. And then Apple comes along and just crushes them. Or Microsoft comes along and just crushes them. How does that happen? Well, it's because for a company like Microsoft or Apple, the expectation is that things are going to go wrong. That's the expectation. So nobody's getting in a room having a really big postmortem and like yelling at people because something went wrong uh, because it's just like go fast and break things and whatever. Like we're just going to try stuff. And so it allows for like all this innovation and all this agility to occur. And they're going to really be pushing the boundaries of, of, of you know, their decisions. But what's happening with IBM? Everything is committee and meeting, structure, you know, all of this stuff. And when they have bad outcomes, someone's in a room getting yelled at. Not when they have good outcomes, only when they have bad outcomes is somebody in a room getting yelled at. And what happens to you when you're a cog in that wheel? You start being really conservative. You, you want everything to be consensus. Everything is status quo. And those little losses, right? they're small, but they start to accumulate over time until one day you wake up and Apple has your market. So that's why actually I wanted to put a bow on that is this is part of the reason why we should care about, did it turn out as expected as opposed to, was it a win or a loss? Because people will learn pretty quickly that, well, I, I also care if you're winning too much. Because if you win a whole bunch, that might mean that you were underestimating the market and you're not deploying enough capital into it. It could mean there was more risk in the project than we actually thought. And I'm actually kind of mad at you for even investing in it. That could happen. Um, but at least you're exploring it. And what you're teaching people is the quality of your decision is what matters to me, not how it turned out. The only thing that, about how it turned out is that if it's unexpected, it's a cue for me to go back and look. I think that every single person that's listening to this should take that last like five minutes and play it back, especially if you have a team. If you have a team of people like I do, I, I'm challenging the way that, that I interact with my, my, my leadership team, like my, my managers, because you know, I, I spend a lot of time on what goes wrong. Like I spend a lot of time talking to them and I don't spend a lot of time on what goes right. And, and when I do, I definitely give them pats on the back, but it's interesting because I don't think about what goes right of it actually could be wrong is what you're right. saying, which is really challenging the way 
that I'm, I mean, I'm just playing back a couple of meetings that we've had recently as you're talking, just going, man, like I, I don't, I, you, you mentioned IBM and I feel like we're getting to that place where we don't celebrate that, that those, those celebrate failure, right? So yeah. I do it in my, I do it in the flipping business. I do it in like times that I make mistakes. I go back and I play it back, but it's, this is like, this is why when I picked up that book a couple of years ago, it's probably like a year and a half ago. And then I read it again, you know, this past, uh, past couple of weeks in preparation for this interview. It, it just made me, it just makes me challenge this. Like your book makes me challenge the status quo. I mean, it's status quo of how we make decisions and you're taking it and, and bringing in all these different angles and making me look at a lot of things differently. I think everybody, uh, frankly, everybody who's listening to this should absolutely get it, absolutely read it. And then challenge yourself to say, like, how, how am I thinking? How do I, what do I do? How do I make decisions? How do I, how do I actually, like, we talk a lot about hiring and managing and running a team and holding people accountable and leading, right? Leadership is huge. And that kind of example that we're setting, we're basically setting the example of, if you make a mistake, you're going to come in and talk with me. And if you did a good job, you probably won't hear from me. Most entrepreneurs like me, like driving entrepreneurs that can delegate to people and really have this huge kind of like, I don't know, like good ego, this drive, this like want to win, this need to win. Like that's how I describe myself. Like I, you get me in a room, I'm hyper competitive and I need to win. And I don't spend a lot of time at all, good or bad, talking about the wins. It's just kind of expected, like you said, like that's it. And all, all, both of my companies, it's just, I expect that you guys do a great job and we win. And, yeah, and that, I mean, I think that that's a problem because when you think about, when you think about the things that go wrong, if it's true that with the things that go wrong, sometimes it's bad luck and sometimes it's, you know, a, an actual bad decision that has to be true of the things that go right as well, that sometimes it's just good luck and sometimes it's a good decision. And actually for both of those things, mostly it's a mix. There's some good decisions mm -hmm. in there. There's some good luck. Uh, there's some, you know, on the law side, there be, might be some bad decisions in there um, and there might just be some, some bad luck. And, and the problem is that when we're, you know, aside from the issue of we're just communicating to people, don't lose. Because if you lose, you're going to get a talking to, right? Which then makes them uh, make decisions that are much more likely to be very conservative or super status quo or super consensus so that when they have that talking to, Either they can avoid the talking to all the altogether like your employee did, right? By never having a deal break, they just avoided the talking to altogether, which is not a good result for you. Um, or they're just like consensus and status quo all the time and just getting everybody to agree with them so that when they get that talking to, they, they can see why A. Um, but so when, you know, aside from that problem, which is a really big problem, if you're not looking at the wins, how do you know what decisions you should repeat and what ones were actually not that great, but just luck went your way? Because now, because you assume, well, if we won, we must have made great decisions. It's very likely that you're repeating some stuff that was pretty random, where some pretty great stuff went your way. And man, you know, like five different things had to break your way and all five of them broke your way. And so now you're looking and you had this big win on something where if you actually were to look at it, you'd be like, oh my gosh, we got so lucky. And why are you losing out on the opportunity to figure out what are the decisions that we should be reinforcing? And what are the decisions that, you know, despite the win, which we're super happy about, we wouldn't want to reinforce because man, that was really low percentage to work out. And you're, it's just like, you're, it's just all this, you know, when you talk about like, 
leaving money on the table like your employee did. Why that's leaving money on the table because we're leaving learning on the table. It's uh, yeah. I well, I know we're going long. I have two things that I want to get to real quick, right. and one of them because as we're talking, some of it we're talking at a little bit higher level. But what I notice is in the beginning, like a lot of this is like a roadblock to getting started. Like I, I don't know if you saw that in poker, like people jumping in because they're scared to lose, right? And I feel like yeah. in real estate, we get the people who who will get all the knowledge. They'll read the books. They'll they'll watch the shows. They'll They'll listen to my podcast. They'll, they'll come to our event even, and then they'll just do nothing with it. And next year, same thing. And we call it uh, the kind of analysis paralysis. They're just paralyzed by too much information and stuff. Um, so I wonder if, if you can speak on that a little bit and like what, what's going on and how to help somebody out of that. Because I'm constantly trying to, trying to motivate them out to say, it's okay to, make a, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to actually lose money. It's actually okay to do these things and try to figure out how to, how to get them to move because they're kind of stuck. Oh my gosh. So, okay. So it's, it's actually really interesting because, um, when, you know, when I wrote thinking bets, so thinking in bets was published in 2018. Um, I was really, you know, trying to make this argument for, for ha having, a you know, really understanding like what is a good decision? The conversation, what is a mistake? right? How do we connect these two things together? How do we sort of unravel that? How does the fact that there's so much kind of luck in the system really mess with the way that we interpret the world? You know, all this stuff. And, I, and what I realized from talking to readers was that they came away thinking that what I was saying was that every decision needs to be very deliberative. You need to take a really long time with it, so on and so forth. Um, and Obviously, the, the thing about, you know, there's luck and there's hidden information and so on and so forth. Like, and I'm saying like, oh my gosh, like I'm a poker player. You're done with the hand in, in two minutes, right? And during that hand, you're, there's sort of not, you're not making all 20 decisions, but there's 20 possible decisions that like could be made. Uh, but you're making a lot of decisions in the space of that two minutes, you know? And in fact, just to give you an idea of like, how quickly do you make decisions in poker? Um, if I take too long, you're allowed to call what's called a clock on me. Uh, and I have a minute and 10 seconds to make a decision. I mean, this is the decision where I could be trying to decide a $50,000 decision or a million dollar decision. I got minute 10. So, so I realized I'm like, oh my gosh, people came away from my book. And here I am a poker player thinking, you know, that you're supposed to like analyze everything to the hilt in order to try to like really improve the information that you have about everything. And, um, you know, and somehow like I was encouraging people to get into analysis paralysis. I don't even know how that happened. That is on me, right? So you can think about thinking that's is kind of like looking at if you had the time to step back and do it, you know, what are the things that you would be taking into account? But in no way, shape or form am I saying that you, you shouldn't, to use the startup analogy, move fast and break things. Because mostly that's what you should do. Mostly once you kind of understand these problems, uh, and once you understand what a really great decision would look like, mostly you're supposed to actually be speeding your decisions up. You're supposed to just go for stuff. So let, let me explain the sort of idea. So anyway, this is something that I really address in how to decide. Um, it's literally what chapter seven is about. Uh, a little hint for people. 
if they sign up for my newsletter at annieduke.com, they can get chapter seven. It's actually the preview chapter that I'm sending out to people uh, prior to the book being released on October 13th. So if they sign up for my newsletter, they can actually get chapter seven. And the name of chapter seven is Breaking Free from Analysis Paralysis. Nice. So hopefully that's a good chapter for people to read. But I'll just give sort of the high level here just really quickly because I don't want to give too much away about a book that's not out yet. But um, essentially, look, here's the key. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of hidden information. I think that you've heard me hinting at saying there's some stuff that you can know and some, some stuff that you can't. Because absent a time machine, most of the stuff that's causing analysis paralysis for us uh, is not available. Because what's causing analysis paralysis is this fear of being wrong, this fear of making a mistake where we're, where the way that we're determining if it was wrong or it was a mistake is because we had a bad outcome. But we cannot protect ourselves against that. And we have the illusion that if we just waited longer, if we just collected more information, if we got more data, if we talked to seven more people, if we looked at a billion more houses, that somehow we would be able to gather enough information to know, to get to like over 90% sure that we we're going to make money on this house, that that decision was going to work out well, that when we're sitting in a restaurant back in the before times and we're trying to decide between the chicken and the fish, if we just asked one more person at the table or looked at one more Yelp review, that somehow we would know that the chicken was better than the fish. But these are things that we can't know absent actually observing the outcome, which requires a time machine. We have to make decisions with limited information because that's the state that we're in. So you want to get just enough information to know that the option meets your requirements and nothing more. This is how you get to be efficient in your decision making. So you have to sort of say, when I'm thinking about different options, I could invest in house A or house B. Once house A is clearly, to me, a better decision than house B, meaning just relative to each other, house A is the better investment, I can be 60% on whether that's going to win or lose. And it's still okay. And it may be that I could go get more information and it's going to make me 65% sure that it's going to win or 70% sure that it's going to win. But it doesn't change anything relative to house B. And the fact is that if every house that I invested in, I was 60% sure I was going to make money, I would have all the money in the world. So we don't need to get to 90%. But we're, we're trying to avoid this thing where we lose and we say, oh, if I had just taken more time. But the, there is no time that's going to get you to know the outcome. This is, this is really important. So that's piece number one is you have to have that mindset change of thinking about there is only much, so much I can know as a human being. I cannot know the outcome. So once, once a house has met my requirements, in other words, once I've sorted out into options that I'd be willing to invest in and options I would not be willing to invest in, I can pretty much just sort of pick among that set at random because I just don't have like the cognitive acuity. I don't, there isn't, there isn't enough information for me to really parse those options apart in a way that I can be confident in. So I should just move and go because I don't want the opportunity to go away because that's what we're costing ourselves. Someone else snaps the house up while we're doing all of our analysis on it, but it already met our requirements. And the, I think the analogy that I can give you is like, when you're looking at a menu, we all know here are the entrees I think I'm going to like, and here are the ones I don't like. And the problem for us is that once we get to like those three things that we're thinking about, we somehow think we should be able to distinguish between the three, which we can't because we haven't tasted the food. So just, just pick. 
right? So once it's got sort of met your requirements, just go ahead and pick. That's number one. Number two is, and this is really, really important. Uh, and if you're a good flipper, you're probably already doing this. When we know that we're uncertain, we have to be uncertain because we aren't omniscient. We don't have time machines. There's just a whole bunch of stuff we can't know. It's really good in those cases to do things, what's called in parallel. In other words, we have this set of things that meets our minimum requirement. And we think I've got to just choose one thing. And then we get caught in analysis paralysis. But once you realize, oh, there's a whole bunch of things that, that meet my minimum requirement, you know what a really good thing for me to do is, is to actually try to spread my bets across a bunch of them. In other words, flip more than one house at once. Because this is sort of helping you to defend against the luck and it's helping you to deal with the uncertainty. No single house that you ever invest in is guaranteed to be a winner. What you're trying to do is if I can meet my requirements, right? If it can pass a bar, you want to think about it as passing a bar, that means the upside potential is greater than the downside potential. But because of luck, I can't control for an individual house whether it makes money or loses money or makes a lot of money or just a little money or whatever. But I know that for each of those houses, there's more upside potential than downside potential. So if I can do a bunch of them at the same time, across that set, I will now get to, to get the upside potential. Even if one of them ends up losing, the other four are going to make up for that because it's just a way to sort of deal with luck. Once you know that you can do more than one thing at once, you can be much less certain about whether the one is gonna win. Look, if I only ever had one house to invest in and my life depended on it, I would be doing more analysis than you can imagine. Because you're gonna literally, like you've got a gun to my head. I've gotta figure out, like this is the only chance I get. But once you tell me, uh, okay, you have to win at this game, but you can do like a hundred different things to try to win, I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna do a bunch of stuff. And that's really going to help you go faster. So like there's a lot more ideas in this particular chapter that people can go download, but like these would be two really big ones. One is it's this mindset. So, so it's this, well, I guess it's sort of three big ideas. One is the mindset shift. Think about relative, you know, options relative to each other. The other is what I call the menu strategy. Once something is, is in the bucket of this looks like a pretty good choice. You look at the things that are in that bucket and you can pretty much flip coins among them. And it's kind of a waste of time to try to distinguish among the two when you could go be finding more things that could go into that bucket. That's where the real value is. I'm going to go find things that can go into the bucket as opposed to trying to choose among the things that are already in the bucket. There's not a lot of value in doing that. And that's what analysis paralysis is causing you to do. It's causing you to try to choose among things that are already in the bucket as opposed to find more things that could go in the bucket, which is where the value is, right? So you want to do that. Uh, and then the third big idea is do a bunch of things at once because that's what allows you to defend against the luck. You know, I, a mentor of mine once told me, so I was flipping one house a year when I got started. One house a year. I, I, I was fortunate enough to make $43,000 on the first house. And the next year I made $45,000 on the next house. And then the year after that, I did 67 houses. And I, and we talked pre-show about a house that I lost $70,000 on that was on HGTV. And if that was the first house that I did, and that's the only house that I did that year, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't be doing this business. I would have said, this isn't for me. This is crazy. I just lost a ton of money. And he told me that it's less risky 
to flip 100 houses a year than it is what you're doing flipping one house a year. And I looked at him like he was crazy at first. And, I, and it's exactly what you just said in that you are de-risking the situation by, and at that, that, that month that I, that I lost $70,000 on that house, we did 10 other houses. And overall, I lost money that month, but I probably only lost as a business owner about five or $6,000 because we made another $60,000 that we netted on everything else. And it was just like, it was crazy. And overall, like big picture, we actually made like $180,000 that month. We just had a bunch of overhead and costs and things. So it, like that proved it to me right then. And I, and I, look, at, I look at big flippers. Jesse Trujillo was on the podcast a couple episodes ago. He's going to be a speaker at Flip Hacking Live. And he does a ton of houses in San Diego. And the, the median home price is like $550,000. And I, we have these awards that we give out for those that make over a million dollars a year at, at our event. And he's got, he sent me his PL. They got to send me their reports. They got to show me that they did that. I got, I got to check it. We actually like underwrite these folks uh, to say they're doing what they say they're doing. And I saw he's, he lost some money on some houses. He's got some $10,000 losses some 15,000 and he's got some 80 or a hundred thousand dollar gains. It's like, and anybody that you see that, that says that they've never lost money before and they're doing high volume, they're, they're either lying to you or they're just happen to be, you, you asked me in the beginning, of these houses that you do every, like the first thing that you asked me was, okay, you're doing all these houses, like what percentage do you lose on? And it was really, it's a, this exact concept. So that was, that, that was literally this the is, first question that I asked you. Yeah, so, so like, and, and the thing is, that's interesting is that once you kind of understand this concept, right? Uh, and this is like standard portfolio theory. You also don't own one stock, I assume, right? You own a lot of stocks. And, and that's the reason why you do this is because uh, every stock should, you know, every stock that you invest in should be in the bucket of, this is more likely to win than lose. But none of the stocks in that bucket can you guarantee that outcome for. That's why you want a lot of things in the bucket. Because then you know that, that over, the, over the set of those things, you're going to end up being able to win. So, so now we can sort of work backwards from this concept, right? If we know that we're working under uncertainty, we know that it's good to sort of get things in a bucket and then not worry too much about the picking among the bucket right? You could probably, you know, just sort of like shoot darts or fish in a barrel or whatever, and you're going to do fine with any of those, uh, those choices, any combination of those choices. We can now work backwards and say, your dream, your dream may be able, may be to flip million dollar houses. But if the only cap, all the capital you have uh, available to you would make it so that you can only do one of those, or you could say, I can flip a whole bunch of $100,000 houses. As you're starting out, you should go flip a whole bunch of $100,000 houses with the idea that my goal is to get to the point where I can flip a million dollar house. But when I flip those million dollar houses, I need to make sure that I'm well capitalized so I can flip many million dollar houses. So we can see how once we understand these concepts, we can actually work backwards and say, okay, then what is the way that I'm supposed to actually be deploying my capital in order to make sure that I'm de-risking and I'm really increasing the chances that I make money here? So I have a choice. I could flip $1 million house or $100,000 houses, which would be my preference. Well, for my ego, maybe I want to flip the million dollar house, but for my pocketbook, I'd rather flip the $10,000 houses and then work my way up. And maybe eventually I'll get to the point where I'm flipping $50 million houses at once. Wouldn't that be amazing? But the way to get there is by not flipping $1 million house. 
that's the way to have luck completely control your destiny and for you to live or die by whether you go broke on that one house or not. This is probably the most fascinating conversation that I've ever had. And I could, I, seriously, I, I know that if we keep, I'm really like, I think I love this stuff. Like I could talk about this seriously all day, no doubt about it. And um, I, I, I realize like every place that I want to go, I want to go deeper because we're constantly just, uh, you're giving me these ideas and thoughts and things that I think are incredibly powerful for our community, number one, but like selfishly, this is like some of these topics and conversations is exactly what I need. Probably like we talk a lot about like busting through the ceiling, right? Getting to the next level. Like how do you, we constantly hit a ceiling, we bust through it. We, we might be people, it might be process. Something's happening in your world that you need to fix. And whether it's your first house or your second house, or you hired your first person, you're con we're, I'm constantly busting through these ceilings, like buying another company, starting another venture, all that stuff. And these kind, this way of thinking, this different dynamics, different uh, concepts that like, challenge you, this is how we grow personally and professionally. And I think that's how we bust through that next ceiling to figure it out. And I, so I'm selfishly like taking advantage of some of this, like asking you questions and I feel like I'm having these epiphanies and I have, I have four pages of notes right here um, for myself to, and things that I'm gonna go implement. And I think you mentioned a couple of things with the analysis paralysis that's gonna help a lot of folks and speed to implementation, obviously is something that I don't lack, but a lot of people do. So I'm gonna challenge everybody that listens to this to go do something about it. Like don't just, don't just like take these notes or, or listen to this interview once and put it on the shelf. Like really think about what you're going to do about this stuff. Like, are you going to think about things differently? Are you going to you know, reallocate and diversify your, your flipping portfolio or your, um, you know, whatever you're doing and really just make a decision, <laughs> like no pun intended on what you're going to do. Like, and first of all, obviously go to annieduke.com and grab chapter seven, because um, I think that's probably what the majority of people that are listening to this need. Uh, most people that can listen to an hour and a half podcast. And I, I mean, I just put out a two hour one a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, you guys are just listening to this and listening to this and listening to this. And although I love that you listen to the podcast and we have great reviews and a ton of downloads and thousands of people are listening to this in the first week, it's incredible. But, and, and millions of downloads over time, but you, I want you to get out of that like learning mode. I want you to go act because I became successful when I took action. I was a library carrying, a library card carrying guy. I didn't spend any money on my education, like my, my self-education. I spent a ton of money on my, on my formal education. And, and I really need to get out of that mindset of like, um, that I, I believe in myself. I'm investing in myself. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something and I'm going to be responsible for the outcome, good or bad. Like, just like Annie said, good decision, bad decision, good luck, bad luck, like these four boxes. And I never thought to put them in four boxes. I always just put them in two, you know? And a lot of people don't believe in luck. They say like, oh, luck, like I don't believe in that. It's when opportunity meets preparation, right? And no. so, yeah. <laughs> Right. So it's like, I get what I got from this is they're actually like, and it, it's, it's 100% true. Like there's a lot of things that you can't control. And when you, when, when we deal a ton with human emotion, like I talk about marketing all the time. And when you put a postcard in somebody's mailbox, it's, it's about how they feel when they open their mailbox to decide whether they're going to call you or they're going to throw it in the recycling bin or the trash can. Like what's going on in their life. And I can't control all their emotions. What I can control is how often I get in front of them and what my call to action looks like in my messaging that triggers their decision to go the way that I want to go. There's, I, I'm an engineer, so I have a background on like science. I love to do science experiments and things. And so you have all these variables and you have all these controls. 
And there's so many variables in what we do and what we talk about. And probably, obviously, you mentioned it in poker and, and the same in house flipping and marketing and sales and everything. There's so many variables that we try to control. Like, we, you can't just change one thing. There's so many things that are constantly changing. And so the information that you take in informs the decision that you make. And then, like I said, you stand by it. But I love the fact that now I, I, I love to go back and I love to replay what happened. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to replay wins more than I replay, and I would say as much as I replay losses. And I do feel like in my defense that I don't really like hammer people for the mistakes that they make and the, and the, and the losses that we have, but we definitely, like, we definitely like do a lot more, we put a lot more emphasis on that than we do on the wins. I just yeah, so, expect so actually to that point, what, what I think is really interesting because I work with leadership all the time, it's what I do as a, you know, it's my business, is that most leaders aren't hammering people for their losses. When, when you listen to what's going on in the room, they're, they're saying, I'm not so worried that we lost. I just want to go back and look at the process and figure out what we can learn about it. And they've got all the right language in there about, you know, well, let's just figure out, like, I, I really want to make sure we're learning from this and we're not repeating the mistake again. And you're yeah. mostly they're saying this in a very nice way. And they genuinely are saying, I don't care about the outcome. I, I don't think they're, no, they're not lying. Nobody, they're not, people aren't yelling for the most part. The problem is that it's a little bit like do as I say, not, you know, do as I say, not as I do, because it doesn't matter how nice you are in the room. If you're only in a room on the losses, you're already communicating what your words might be saying something different, but your actions are, are telling people that you really care when you lose. As much as you're saying, I'm not worried about wins or losses, I'm worried about the learning opportunity. If you're, if you're only doing that when you lose, people hear loud and clear that you care about the fact that you lost. And you, know, and you can see how easy it is to implement this across, um, you know, across all the decisions you make. If you decide like, look, I'm gonna think about a particular type of, I'm gonna change the language of the, of the card that I put in people's ma mailboxes, because I have a hypothesis. And I think that if I change the language in a particular way, it's gonna, it's gonna increase uh, the number of people who call me. Take the time to write down how much you think it's going to increase it. It's a two-second thing to do. I mean, you're deciding that you put into the, in the effort. You clearly decide that changing it and reprinting the cards and doing whatever it is is, is going to be fruitful for the, the cost of time and money that it's going to take you to change those cards. So write down what percentage increase am I going to get in, in when I'm cold calling people by just putting a card in their mailbox, what's the percentage increase I'm going to get in the number of people that call me back? Write it down. Now, if it comes in lower, you can be like, hmm, let me think about that. But also, if it comes in way higher, you can be like, oh, that was way better than I thought. So what is it about this, about this language change? that was so effective. It was much more effective than I thought it would be because I might be able to do more of that. And I might be able to increase my win rate even more, right? So it's this little extra step where instead of just saying, I think this will be a good change. You just make yourself say, well, how much of a good change is it gonna be? Take your best guess, don't worry. It's not about being right or wrong. It's that this is already included in your process anyway. Because by making the change, you're saying you think it's going to be better than it was before. So just write it down. Write down how much better you're, you're, you think it is. It's just an educated guess of that. And now when, when you get the feedback, you actually have something to feed back against. And then you can look, ooh, this was way better. Ooh, this was way worse. Or, oh, this was about what I expected. 
And it's just a little, like literally, and you can take any decision that you make and just do that. Like, I don't know that you put cards in mailboxes. You just told me that you do that. And I can show you, okay, well, oh, here's how you can implement this. Right. You can, you can really start to spread this across your decisions and it's going to make you so much better. And it's going to, and like, like I said, think about what that's communicating to the people who are working for you right? Everything becomes a learning opportunity. It's not just like, I can't believe we spent all this money on the printing to change the language on these cards and look at what, we got fewer callbacks than we did. It was a huge flop. Let's talk about it. And I'm going to talk about it in a really nice way, but I'm communicating something really different to you. I've got three words on my wall. It's hypothesize, test, and pivot. And so uh, I, I like to think that in my hypothesized process i document the expected outcome but i don't really it's like in my head and then i change it as we go along i'm like oh yeah that's a little bit better but like how much better or it's a little bit worse but how much worse like what did i really think so i i'm gonna actually so this is something actionable for me right now this second i can go walk over there i can erase hypothesize i can move it up and i'm gonna put hypothesize document test pivot so um, i wrote that down so hopefully that helps somebody out there like that's my process for basically everything that i do is if we're going to change it. And the other, the other thing that, that is probably a good tip for somebody who's listening is recently my team and my staff, we've been making a lot of changes to the things that we're doing. And we're, we're uh, Terry Berger, the COO that I just brought on, he said, we're kind of like, like Nashville songwriters. So I live in Nashville, so he kind of used this analogy. And he said, we're constantly like writing lots of songs and looking for the hit. And so I said, I said okay, that makes a lot of sense. The, the, because we're, we, we change things so fast. We're like, okay, m- try this marketing piece, try this thing, try this thing, try this thing. And we're constantly just testing and testing and testing. And so what I said to my team was that I said, look, guys, we move really fast, but what we don't do is when we find something that works, we don't leave somebody behind to make sure that we continue to make it work. We kind of just like, oh, that was working really well. Let's, let's find the next thing. And so what I said to them is like, how much, how much work is it going to take to do this thing that you want to do, and then how much is it going to increase the outcome? Like how much is it going to take to do it? Yeah. And then is it going to just increase by 5% or 10%? And then how much work has to go in if we're already at 80% and you've got to put you know, 10 hours a week extra or we have to hire another employee to get it to 85 or 90%, like are we actually happy with it at 80%? Do we have to make it that little bit better? So I've been challenging them a ton and it kind of goes into what you just said is you really have to analyze all the work, all the hours, everything that's going to happen to go into it to determine what the output is going to be and how it's going to change. And really, because that's been my pushback to my staff lately is, oh, I need another person. I need another team member. We need to try this. We need to get, like, we're at 85%. I want to get to 90. Like, but it's like, whoa, that's, that's actually like lifting up the entire company, adding four more people just to get, and I want to be there too, but Maybe now's not the right time because we have all these other things going on. And by the way, and it might, it may not, that, that's the thing to your point. Like it may not be worth it. Yep. Exactly. And again, that, that has to do with that indexing on outcomes. If I can show an increase in gross, right. Uh, I'm not really thinking about, look, if, if we have the reason, if we have the money laying around to hire four more people, is that actually the right way to deploy that capital? And by the way, we also have to consider maybe we shouldn't deploy that capital at all. Maybe we're pre- supposed to preserve capital, increase runway, and you know whatever preserve for other stuff. So um, 
so that's something that we like it this is the thing is that like we're we're not we're not sort of looking at it holistically in terms of what what does the allocation look like what are our goals what are our values what are we trying to accomplish how can this go wrong what are the opportunities that we're giving up by choosing to do this right so on and so forth and and if you're not really looking at it this way you're not really making a decision you're kind of you know going around in the dark hoping that you know you get an increase so that you get a pat on the back cuz there was an increase and that you don't lose so um yeah so i mean i i agree i mean i think that you really need to that that document piece is so incredibly important you know and what's what's in that document is you you need to know obviously what your thesis is you have to think about uh what the costs are going to be you have to give an estimate of what the upside potential is going to be so on and so forth i mean there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to go into that but a really good decision process creates all that documentation for you naturally it's not the interesting thing about it is that it's not it's not extra work because if you're actually implementing a great decision process that documentation is going to be produced naturally it's not going to be like it won't actually end up being an extra step um so i i think that that's one of the really great things about making great decisions is that you're naturally documenting what your expectations of the world are and the reason why you're doing that is because any decision that you make is a prediction about the future so if you don't make that explicit you're not making a good decision so at the time of the decision you have to make that prediction about the future explicit so otherwise you can't be making a good decision and once you make that explicit you naturally have documentation it just sort of occurs as part as a natural part of the process um and then you can then you can be circling back and like understanding these issues and these complexities a lot better well i could definitely talk to you for another couple hours so let's let's figure out how to wrap this thing up it seems like every time yeah. you'll you say something it triggers something in me uh is eas easily one of my favorite interviews i've ever done oh and i i think i'm on 4 or 500 right now um it's it's really incredible to see uh to to just have this conversation with you and um I, i didn't even realize time was flying the way it was so um so everybody go to anydude.com sign up for annie's newsletter i think it's obvious the kind of value and content that she puts out uh, go grab thinking in bets like pick up that book um on audible I, i'll ask you at, at the end like where they can find it where's the best place for them to get it well i mean actually so i th- if you go to my website it's got all the links there but it's it's all the usual places you know it, there's a kindle version audio version hard copy paperback uh that book's been out for a couple of years so you can get it in any form anywhere yeah i i think most of our listeners are probably especially the podcast listeners are will grab it on audible i'm sure yeah, they, um, and then the other thing i know that i know that uh later you know obviously at the the other event we're going to be talking about how to decide but i do want to let people know that 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 is available for pre-order you can find the the link on my website but impor- this is why i want to let people know this is that uh if you pre-order the book by it's coming out on the october 13th if you pre-order it by october 12th um and you show proof of purchase i'm doing actually an exclusive ama just for people who have uh pre-ordered that book. So, um you know, hopefully you're going to want to read it anyway for 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 the event that I'm going to be doing with you, but this will also allow you to do another event where you can participate in an AMA with me if you if you go ahead and pre-order that. Okay, can you explain to everybody uh like me who has no idea what an AMA is? 
Oh, okay. Um, so an AMA is ask me anything. So it'll be on zoom. Um, you'll get, you'll get an, uh, if you show proof of purchase on the day of, you get a link, it's going to be at 8 PM Eastern, um, on October 15th. And, uh, so, and you just have to show proof of purchase by, uh, you know, it just has to show that you purchased it by October, October 12th. So basically what's going to happen is that I'm going to read an excerpt on Zoom and then uh, it's going to be a moderated ask me anything so people can put questions into the chat and then I will answer them. Okay, let me ask you a question that probably every single one of my listeners is, is, is asking right in their head right now is if they show proof of purchase and can't make that ask me anything um, time, are you... Uh, uh, providing it to them on a recording or something like that, that they can watch it later. Or do they have to be online. You know what? I don't know. Okay. So I will find out for you. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because every single person that's listening to this podcast right now on October 15th, 16th and 17th is going to be at flip hacking live my event, but at eight o'clock Eastern time, um, we will be done by then. So my, my question, I, I'm sure they're all like, I will have been on a Zoom call all day and not right. a Zoom yeah, call I like totally this. Yeah, totally get it. Totally get we it. We are like, we're going to crush this event. We have a studio in North Carolina that we're building out. I'm actually um, flying some, some of our keynote speakers in that will speak from the studio. I'm, some of my staff is coming in. So we have a setup where um, we have all these computer monitors and TVs. I can see every single person on the screen, just like we're putting on a live event for, virtually for them. So uh, they will be sitting in their house on their couch, watching on the TV, watching on the computer, stuff like that. But if you're not coming to Flip Hacking Live, if you're like the one person that listens to podcasts that's not coming, um, then absolutely. But it would be awesome. Maybe we can work something out where um, where our folks, we make sure they buy a ton of books and we yeah, can get absolutely. some sort of recording or something. Yeah, so we'll, we'll figure it out. And I know yeah. that uh, the other thing is that um, uh, uh, I have to, uh, if it's, if, there's a limited number, like there's only a certain amount of band, like a certain number of people that you can have yeah. on the Zoom. So if I go beyond that, I have to have a second event anyway, because uh, I'm not allowed to lock anybody out. So Okay, so uh, let's do this. Hey, everybody that listens, I know that we got 5,000 people that listen in like the first week. We get like, you know, 25,000 downloads of this thing by the time that happens probably. So everybody go buy Annie's book right now send the proof of purchase in, just blow up her Zoom call, like way outside her Zoom capacity, and we'll force her into another date after Flip Hacking Live. That, so the other by the way, that, that would do it. And I just want to be clear because I don't, look, I want people to buy Thinking and Bets for sure. I just want people to know that if you show me perf per proof of purchase for Thinking and Bets, it's not, it's not going to get you into the Zoom. Yeah. This is pre-order for How to Decide, which is, which is out on October 13th. Okay, so we, I think we got it. We talked a lot about Thinking in Bets today. That's, um, that's this book that I talked about from 2018. It has changed a lot in the way that, and honestly, like having this, having this conversation with you one-on-one -on -one is, is like, has even like moved that to another level of what I'm going to do and how I'm going to implement. And I'll tell you, in, in a business like mine, this, this conversation alone will make me hundreds of thousands more dollars. I guarantee it. The productivity oh my of my staff, well, my team. Where's my piece? No. Yeah. Hey, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, I'm joking. Yeah. I'm joking. We'll figure it out off camera. The, you know, it, it's incredible. Like we just, just one little change, one little shift, one little adjustment, you know, a five or 10 or 20% in, like, change in a business that's doing three and a half million dollars a year is that's $350,000, 10%, like a little tweak. The, just the way that you show up, the way that you lead, the way that you carry yourself, you, you show up for your team on your calls, on your on your one-on-ones, uh, all that stuff, like that little tweak that I'm going to make, all these notes, when I start implementing them, like right now, today, 
it's going to make a change and it's going to make a difference. And we don't realize that when we, when we do these things, when we listen to these things, because a lot of people, they don't implement what they have. So, so Annie mentioned like when we do your event, so I think she like subtly said that. So um, I was able to talk to her ahead of time and she agreed. If you guys like this, um, I think you're really going to love uh, seeing her at our event, which she agreed to speak at Flipacking Live, which is unbelievable, really amazing. I actually have uh, like no room uh, in the schedule at all, but I, I talked to her publicist and we were talking, I said, what are the chances that we could do something like this? And she's like, oh, I think she'd be interested. I was like, I'm making room. Like, I'm going to move this person over here. I'm going to move it. I might, might keep you guys like half an hour longer on the last day. Um, but like, we have to hear this because this, how to, how to decide, like we talked about a lot of the concepts, the, um, the structure, the why of decision-making tonight, like today. And when you hear this, you're going to say like, okay, but I get it. Like, I understand all that stuff, but like, how, like, how do I implement it? And that's why she wrote the second book. It's the how piece. And Flip Hacking Live is all about the how. Like there's tons of mindset concepts of changing your beliefs, understanding all that stuff. But this is the how. Like the how is where the rubber meets the road, right? So hopefully you listen to this. You buy Thinking and Bets. You read that ahead of time. You buy her How to Decide book before the 13th. You buy it on the 12th or earlier. Send proof of purchase of that book. And then you show up to Flip Hacking Live see her there uh, among with 24 other speakers that are going to be absolutely amazing. That will change your life. Every single one of them is worth 10 times the cost of admission period. And you come to the event and you, you understand the how, like the, the concept and reason that you show up at, the, at flip packing live is after those three days, you should be able to implement every single one of those speakers gives you something to implement in your business that changes it in an increment. And everybody's going to give you a seven figure, like blueprint, a seven figure treasure map. Like Chris Logan and Heather Logan that I just interviewed, they're going to give you the treasure map of virtual wholesaling where you don't even have to wholesale houses in your own backyard. They're going to show you how to do it. They're not going to hold anything back. We're not going to charge you something afterwards. And then I'm going to show you a seven-figure treasure map in a whole other area. Annie's going to give you a seven-figure treasure map. You can create a seven-figure business just by adjusting the way that you make decisions. It's obvious here. Like I know that it'll change my business massively. So go to fliphackinglive.com, grab your ticket. Don't wait. Our prices are going up every couple of weeks. Just like Annie, we have limited capacity at our event too. It's sold out every year in the past. And I know that after all of these interviews, I'm bringing on the keynote speakers coming up. I'm announcing a new speaker every couple of days. And obviously just this one alone, like right now, I think the ticket prices are $397. I mean, normally you're getting a plane ticket, you're getting a hotel, you're getting a thousand dollar ticket to our live event. And for $397, I'm going to ship you a box. I'm going to ship you all the goodies. It's going to be just like a live event. You're going to be checking in one-on-one, -on -one, breakout sessions, networking, all the stuff that we do. Don't miss it. Like, it, don't miss this opportunity for $397. I would pay thousands of dollars just to have this conversation. And she's going to come prepared with a presentation just for you on how to make these decisions. So don't miss it. Uh, I don't want you to miss it. And I don't know, Annie, like, should they make the decision to buy a ticket? I mean, that's a pretty easy decision, right? I just, I just laid it out, right? Well, I don't know that that was a, it was a pretty good pitch anyway. I can see that you're a very good salesperson. I was like, who I need to buy a ticket for this. I'm going to start flipping houses. You, know, you just let me know. If you want one, we'll give you one. So I will give you some yeah. access. You're a speaker. You can have as much access as you want. Hang out with us. But Thanks. Uh, like Thanks. everybody, you got to go. go. Don't wait. Go get your ticket. I know you guys are waiting. We're entrepreneurs. We wait till the last second. Um, we're raising the prices. The prices are going to go up. There's a, I got five emails this morning. We just raised the price for $297 to $397. I, got, I woke up to five emails. So like, hey, I missed it. Can I, can I, you honor the new price, the old price? I was like, no, I, told, I sent you five emails. I told you, you had the opportunity. So we wait, we wait to decide. We have uh, analysis paralysis.
you're trying to decide between this and what sitting on your couch all day. You always have to remember there's a cost. There's a cost to not deciding as well. That's right. Cost free, but you've made it clear there's a cost, but that's a cost. It's a cost no matter what. Yeah. And it's an investment in yourself. Like that's one thing that I didn't do uh, before and that I do in spades now. I mean, I'll spend six figures on my my education this year of being around people, being in the right room, trying to level up to the next, next level, bust through the next ceiling, have coaches and mentors and, and people like that. So um, I'm, I'm, it's, I love the fact that I can bring all of these people to one place and we can we just all share this information together. So go to flippackinglive.com, grab your tickets. Annie Duke, like, thank you so much for being well, on the show. You. This is amazing. Like, I really enjoyed our conversation. Everybody go to annieduke.com, sign up for the newsletter, grab that chapter. And I think that'll give you a, a little insight into what she's going to be talking about at the event and uh, get, grab thinking and bets. And um, let's do this. If you guys, um, if you guys send me an email to info at uh, sevenfigureflipping.com, send me an email info at sevenfigureflipping.com and, um, and give me a screenshot of this podcast and uh, like this, this episode of the podcast. Tell me what you took from this. So that's one option. Tell me what you got from this podcast and what you're going to do about it. That's one option. The other one is leave us a rating and review. Uh, five star, four star, one star, whatever it is for you guys. Leave us a rating and review. Send us a screenshot. Email me at info at sevenfigureflipping.com. And the first, uh, the first 20 people that do that, I'll, I'll mail you a copy of Thinking in Bets. So I will buy the copy. I'll mail it directly to you. You're going to have to give me your, your home mailing address or wherever you want me to mail it to. But you send me that screenshot. Um, the other way that you can do it is you can go on social media, do that exact thing. Tag me at Bill Allen REI. And, uh, and I'll mail it to you. Um, you're still going to have to email me that you did it. Send me a screenshot of that and I'll, I'll mail it to you. So the first 20 people I'll do that for. So, uh, Annie, thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. I'll, uh, I'll see you soon. Hey, it's Bill again. And I want to personally invite you to our biggest event of the year, Flip Hacking Live. If you could copy the exact deal sources, marketing strategies, negotiation tactics, and business systems of the most successful house flippers and wholesalers in the nation, how would that change your business? Flip Hacking Live is a three-day event that we do just once per year, and it's happening October 15th through the 17th. We bring in the nation's top wholesalers and house flippers to walk you through everything they're doing, how they're marketing directly to sellers, how they're picking up discounted off-market properties, how they're doubling their close ratio with the right negotiation tactics, how they're raising millions of dollars in private money, the things they're doing that other investors aren't doing, all of it. These are the guys and gals who are actively doing deals at a high volume in today's market all across the country. You get their full attention for three days. They have agreed to hold nothing back and you'll be right there with them so you can ask questions and get clarification on anything that you need. This is your chance to hack the nation's top flippers and wholesalers and ethically steal their exact strategies and systems. All you have to do is take notes, ask questions, and apply what you learned. But first, you need to get a ticket. We've sold out every year and ticket prices go up every few months. So go to fliphackinglive.com right now and get your tickets today. Fliphackinglive.com, October 15th through the 17th. This is an event that you cannot afford to miss.